from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. Everybody loves a parade, right? Parades are, are, are fun. I know in the U.S., when we think of parades, we usually think of fun activities, and probably the, the top two in our minds become Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Anybody been to Macy's in person? Anyone? I thought somebody would. And the second one I thought of was uh, the Rose Bowl. Anybody been to the Rose Bowl Parade in person? No? Okay. Well, I thought so. I thought of the two. I thought one would have, y'all would But, you, you know, everybody tunes into those and, and watch them. You know, we got the local parades and Winston and Thomasville, the Christmas parades, Memorial Day parades. I mean, they're, they're just... They're just fun, right? I mean, parades are designed to be fun. The interesting history about parades is they didn't start out of these fun little parades, right? They, it, they didn't start out as let's just have a band and play and just, uh, you know, come together and, and watch a float. You know, the history of parades are uh, militaristic. You know, they, that's how the whole idea of a parade started, you would have a military parade to show off, you know, the power of your military or to, to, to celebrate a, a victory. Now, I found this interesting. I didn't know this. Do you know that in U.S. history, there's only been seven national military parades in the U.S.? There's only been seven. I didn't know that. The first one was in 1865 and the most recent in 1991. So it's not something that, that we do often. Now, other countries did, right? Uh, you know, in Moscow, when we went to Red Square, which was just a really surreal experience, the thing that I remember uh, just just kind of stopping and looking is when you walked into Red Square, you could still see the lines on Red Square that, that were the lanes for their parades. And we remember the parades, right? The tanks coming in and the missiles and, and everything. It was, a, it was a display of power. And they weren't the first. Right? You can go all the way back to history and go, go to Rome and look at their parades. And when uh, John writes his gospel, Rome was the, the largest military power in the world. Right? And when you think of Rome, who do you think of? You think of Julius Caesar, right? So Julius Caesar uh, loved a good parade, and, and they were called triumphs. Right? That's what the parades were called. They were triumphs. Now you know why it's called the triumphal entry, in case you didn't. But one of Caesar's triumphs was described this way. It was after he defeated Gaul, he, he arrived in a chariot drawn by four horses with thousands lined the streets to cheer him. And he walked up to the capital in the evening by torchlight, listen to this, with a path lined with 40 elephants bearing lamps on his right and his left. That's a parade. I, I, I mean, that would be amazing. It is both fear-inspiring, right? Because look at what this person has done, and awe-inspiring at the same time. When we come to John 12, we read about another triumph. The unique thing about John 12 is it looks like nothing of a victorious king coming into battle. No one would call it a triumph. You've got one person arriving on a donkey, and yet we're told it is indeed a triumph. Let's listen to what God's Word says, beginning in verse 12. 
The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Coming to that passage this morning, I I want us just real briefly to set the timeline where we are. And the reason why is when we come to John chapter 12, from John chapter 12 all the way to John chapter 21, we're really only covering about eight days. When we get to John 13, it shortens to six days. So John slows his gospel way, way down at this point. And it is the next day. The next day from what? It's the next day from the feast where Jesus was anointed by Mary. And we remember that that was on a Saturday night. That was the... the, what we would call Saturday night, it would be beginning of their Sunday. So it would be the end of their Sabbath going in into Sunday. And so now Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on Sunday. When you're reading through John's gospel, what you will notice is he goes Saturday, Sunday, and then John doesn't mention anything about Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. He picks back up on Thursday. So even though he covers eight days, he really only spends... He only talks about four. All the Gospels are are silent about Saturday between the crucifixion and the resurrection. So John is going to slow everything down and give us a lot of details about what is happening. He really wants us to focus on, on the passion of Jesus. And one week, the day after his anointing, one week before the resurrection, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And he most likely enters into what is called the Golden Gate or the Eastern Gate. It's called the Eastern Gate because it faces east. Yeah, you know, there are seven gates into Jerusalem, and this one was called the Eastern Gate. Now, what's really interesting about this gate is it has now it's been sealed since the mid 1500s. But at the time, it was not. And Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He comes from the Mount of Olives, which is opposite the Eastern Gate. So from the Mount of Olives, you could look down and see the Eastern Gate. And he comes in to the city. And look at verse 13. As he is coming in, they go out to meet him. Right Now, I I know that we usually see the triumphal entry when Jesus is in the city. Right? Think about the pictures that you see. You see him going through, and it's always people are there, and it's usually buildings in the background and the the pictures. And, And yeah, there probably were people inside. But what John points out to us is people were so desirous to see Jesus that even though they were preparing for the Passover, they leave the city, and they go outside, and they line the road into the city. So before Jesus even goes through the gate, people are already outside. 
And the people that are outside is a mixed crowd, right? Because if you look down in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he raised Lazarus is there. And also there's a crowd who, who wasn't there in verse 18. They went out because they had heard about the sign. So in this, in this crowd, you've got people who saw the sign, and you have people who didn't see the sign, but they wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to get to Him. You know, when Jesus shows up, people want to see Him. I know right now in the news lately, you've, you've probably read about the Asbury Revival happening out in Kentucky uh, that started out as a, a chapel service and the students stayed after and continued to pray and, and worship and it just kind of to grew and, and, and grew and, and, and grew. And you'd read stories about people who were traveling to Asbury to, to see what was going on. There was one article or, or just one, I don't know if I saw it, Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you get news nowadays. Uh, there were six guys who drove round trip nine hours to pray at the altar for 30 minutes. Now, my thoughts aside about that, but the point is, where Jesus is working, people want to see. People want to be a part of that. And the people saw Lazarus raised from the dead, and they saw Je they want to be a part of Jesus. They want to be where Jesus is. But other people didn't see it, but heard, and they still want to go see where Jesus is. See what Jesus is doing. So they leave the city to go out, line the streets, take palm branches, which were prescribed as part of the festival uh, Feast of Tabernacles, but kind of morphed into a... a national symbol that they would use for times of praise. They grab the palm branches and, and, and they're waving them and, and they're rejoicing uh, before God. And, and here they are, they're, they're, they're out there lining it. And for the third time, and I hinted at this Wednesday night, we see people acting and speaking more than they know. Because he doesn't look like a king. I mean, have you ever stopped and really ask the question, why do they shout this? You weren't there, but let's just, let's just for a minute, oh, let's, let's just for a minute, okay? King Charles, let's go back to him for just a minute. If he showed up on his coronation riding on a donkey, would y'all look at him and go, here comes the king? Would, would that be the first thing that crosses your mind? Right? Even for us today, right? It doesn't even have to be a king, right? Let's, let's, let's imagine that you're meeting with a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and you're outside waiting for this person, and all of a sudden, a, a, a 1983 Nissan Sentra pulls up. Are you expecting the CEO of a Fortune 500 company to get out of that? No. What are you, you're looking for the Mercedes, or you're looking for the, the Escalade, or you're, you're looking for something that says power, something that says wealth, something that says pay attention to me. Caesar comes in, a chariot, four horses, and elephants. <laughs> it says pay attention to me. Jesus comes in on a donkey. And yet their first response is to say, here comes the king. How would they know to say that unless they are speaking more than they know? 
We've seen this repeatedly throughout John. And right here, very condensed, he keeps bringing that up. Since Jesus then is king and they recognize him as king, Scripture recognizes him as king, what are some aspects of his king, kingship? Well, I want you to just see four this morning. And the first one is this. His kingship is messianic. His kingship is messianic. And you see this in, in several different places in this text. The first one is verse 13. Verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel comes from Psalm 18. All right, you don't need to, you can turn there if you want to. But Psalm 18 is the last of a grouping of psalms called the halals. It means hallelujah, praise the Lord. It begins with Psalm 113. And it goes all the way up to Psalm 118. Because over and over through those psalms, they, they are praising God. They are praising Him for His steadfast love. Praise the Lord. Give thanks for His steadfast love. Our God is great. He is seated on high, the Lord above all nations. And it gets to Psalm 118, and it's the longest of those. And it just directs our attention to the steadfast love of the Lord. But Psalm 118 is also messianic. So as you're reading this and you're going through this and it starts to build and it talks about the trouble that he is in and Yahweh is on all sides and Yahweh is salvation, begin in verse 19, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then verse 25, save us, we pray, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. This is, this is where they're going. This is what they're saying as Jesus rides in. Hey, we recognize that you're coming to save us. We recognize that, that the king is coming to save us. And so they look at Jesus and they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the one who is blessed in this case, they're, they're not heaping blessings upon Jesus. They are stating that he is blessed because he is the one. He is the Messiah who is to come. They, 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 they understand, even if they don't completely understand. But then they continue, right, with the passage in Zechariah that says he's coming in lowly, riding on a donkey. And that's from Zechariah 9. And Zechariah 9 says this, because they don't quote the whole thing. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. Now this is just straight prophetic fulfillment. We, we can see that. They, they, they say that. And, and the amazing thing is, I don't know if they are... Again, realizing that they are fulfilling prophecy that 500 years before this was written, God spoke to Zechariah and said, write about this day, write about how the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem. 
And he does. And they recognize that and shout that. And and they say, here comes the king in his triumph, even though it looks nothing like a triumph. But they're shouting to the king, Hosanna, which means save us now, which is exactly what they say in Psalm 118. Save us now, we pray, O Lord, Hosanna. Save us now. The question is, what do they want to be saved from? And what they want to be saved from is is not their sins. What they want to be saved from is Rome. They think that Jesus is coming in to overthrow Rome and reestablish the kingdom. Make Israel as prosperous as it once was under David and under Solomon. This is what they want. This is what they desire, but this is why Jesus did not come. He did not come to overthrow Rome. He did not come to institute a new government with him at the head. That's what they wanted, but that's not why he came. Because if that was why he came, imagine how disappointed they're going to be in six days when they see him hanging on a cross. Right? He's going to fail his mission if that is why he came. But he did not come to reestablish the nation of Israel. Jesus came to call all nations to himself, to call all people to salvation, to call all people to spiritual freedom. That was the mission of the Messiah. That was why he was to come. And while they recognize that he is king, they don't recognize his mission. They just don't see it. Now, one of the interesting things about Jesus entering into Jerusalem that kind of ties in with with Jewish tradition is in Jewish tradition, this is not the Golden Gate. This is not the Eastern Gate. This is called the Mercy Gate because they believe this is where the Messiah will come and he will enter Jerusalem through the mercy gate on his way to be crowned king. But what's kind of just amazing about it is Jesus is already, the Messiah has already entered through the mercy gate. This is what this is a picture of. Jesus the Messiah fulfilling, or excuse me, Jesus the king fulfilling all the messianic prophecies about him coming into the city. He is the one. He is the one who entered through the mercy gate on his way to the cross to shed his blood for us. Jesus is the king who laid down his life for his people. This is is our king. But his kingship is also peaceful. His kingship is also peaceful. Look at verse 15 there. It says, fear not, fear not. Again, quoting Zechariah 9, it, it starts off in saying, Fear not, because Zechariah 10, Zechariah 9 verse 10 is, is really just a picture of, of, of war. Right? It, it talks about, in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and, and the, the war horse from Jerusalem. Right? We, war horses were mean. <laughs> Lily takes riding lessons, and she rides a horse named Dash, and Dash isn't mean. 
You wouldn't ride Dash into war, but war horses, the teeth would be filed, the hooves would be filed. They were taught to bite. Right? I mean, if you saw a war horse coming, you would be afraid. Jesus says he's cutting that off. He's, he's breaking the bow. The bow of, of the archers is, is going to be broken. And he shall speak peace to the nations. So here comes Jesus in on a donkey. Again, I can't get rid of that imagery. Because they're thinking he's a conquering king, but he, he, he is, but not in the way that they imagine. And so he looks at the people and he says to them, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. I come to bring peace to the nations. And the donkey, as he is going in, is a visual symbol for the people. It's like, hey, I know that you're quoting Zechariah 10, but think about, or excuse me, Zechariah 9, but think about what it says. Donkeys were animals of peace, ridden by merchants or, or priests, or even possibly a powerful person might ride in on a donkey as a symbol of peace. So everything that Jesus is doing is pointing not to a militaristic campaign, but pointing to a campaign of peace. This is the kingdom that he is coming to bring. And he says, do not be afraid, O daughters of Zion. That, that just means Jerusalem. Don't be afraid. But again, sometimes you just got to ask yourself, why would they be afraid? Why would they be afraid? Well, if Jesus comes in military conquest, there's going to be violence. It would be fearful. Do you think that if Jesus comes in and he starts to lead people to rebel against Rome, do you think that Rome's just going to throw up their hands and go, yep, it's good. You can have the city back. Right? We, we always talk about, you, you hear in history, right, the, the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. But what people fail to, to think about when, when they hear that is, yeah, Rome kept the peace, but it was kept by the point of a spear. They're not just going to sit back and do this. Don't, don't, don't be afraid. I've not come to start a military campaign that is going to lead to violence and to death. In fact, I come to bring the kingdom of peace. So when you read that passage in Zechariah 9, in, in verse 9 and then verse 10, verse 10 is a description of what peace would look like. There's no chariots, there's no war horses, there's no bows, there's, there's a cessation of hostility where he speaks peace to the nations. And he's telling them, look, the peace that you ultimately need, I am coming to bring to you, and the peace is not between you and Rome, but it's between you and God. That's the peace that they need because they don't recognize themselves as the enemies of God that they are. Before we were saved, I don't think any of you probably thought, well, I'm an enemy of God. Right? We, we, we take the sanitized version. Well, I just wasn't saved. That's true. You're also an enemy of God. Romans 5.10 says, well, we were enemies with God. Romans 8.7 says, for the, mind of the, uh, for the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. We don't like to think that we were ever in war with God. But we were. The people who are lining the street are in war and rebellion with God. The prophets spoke to them time and time and time again. 
Again, I, keep, I, I go back to this and say this every now and then. When they're going into the promised land and, they're shouting, and, and half are shouting down the blessings and half are shouting down the curses, and then the prophets come along later, they say, look, you were warned about what would happen if you stood against God, if you made yourself an enemy of God. And the prophets have come to call them back to God, saying the curses you are experiencing, you were warned about. The difference is the prophets didn't have the ability to end the hostility once and for all. But Jesus does. Because we can't negotiate peace with God. What would you bring to the table to negotiate peace with God? All right now, I, I know that we try, don't we? we? We've done the God, if you will, then I will prayers. Right? We, we've prayed those. But we have nothing to offer God. We have nothing to come to Him and say, hey, if you'll stop being mad at me, then. So Jesus says He's come to bring peace, the kingdom of peace, and where we have peace with Christ. We have peace with God. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we can have that. That's why He's going to go to the cross. That's the point. That's the purpose. He's coming to bring us a greater peace. This is our king. This is what he does for us. But then the kingdom, kingship of Jesus is divisive, which I know the first thing you are thinking about is those two things don't go together, Gary. One is peace. One is divisive. Well, this is the reaction of the gospel. This is the reaction of Jesus. It divides people. There are people who will submit to his kingship, and there are people who absolutely will not submit to his kingship. Greg told a story in Sunday school about a guy he was talking to, and the guy kept bringing up all his good works and all his good works and all his good works. And you know why you keep bringing up all your good works to Jesus? You know why somebody does that? Because they don't want to submit to his kingship. They don't want to submit and recognize your good works aren't good enough. I have to submit. So the kingdom of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus is divisive. And you see this even here, right? Look, the crowds, one part of the crowd is going, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're there. They're, they're on Jesus' side. They've seen it. The, they're bearing witness, it tells us in verse 17. But then in verse 19, we had the Pharisees say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is the other side. Right? One side of the crowd, here comes Jesus. The Pharisees going, man, I can't believe this guy. We can't get rid of him. <laughs> he's, he's still here. And I love what they say. Because when you look carefully at, at what they say, you, you know they've been trying to, to stop Jesus, and they finally admit they're gaining nothing. It didn't work with the blind guy. It didn't work in the conversation about the sheep. It didn't work with Lazarus. And it's not working now. In fact, their attempts have been spectacularly unsuccessful. They keep failing and they keep failing and they keep failing, but they keep going after Jesus. And where they have had no success, look, they don't have success, but then they say the world is going after him. Jesus is having tremendous success with people coming to know him. 
Now, of course, that is hyperbolic, but you get the point. And what you see in this crowd is you see the division between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And, and this division operates on, on, on two different levels. One level is intrapersonal, meaning with, with inside you, where Jesus is calling you out of the darkness, but you just love it too much, right? We've already seen that in John, that the people love the darkness. They don't want to come out. They don't want to submit. They don't want to recognize Jesus. Their sinful behavior, they enjoy it too much. And so in that darkness, they refuse then to die to self. Good works is refusing to die to self because that says, I can do it. It says, I can do it. I'll get the trophy. I'll get the medal because but, but, I can. And we don't want to do that. I mean, to deny yourself is, 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 is hard. Right? Especially in a world that says, why shouldn't you? Right? The whole model, I mean, the philosophy of the world right now is don't deny yourself. Just do whatever you want to. Who cares? The gospel says, no, you got to deny yourself. Deny yourself to, to submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior, but then the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit is self-control. Because the way to the kingdom of Christ is through death. Right? Galatians 5.24, For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There it is, dying to self. That We have to die to self so that we may live through Jesus. But not only is it intrapersonal, it's interpersonal. You can go to Matthew 10, look at verse 35 through 39, and that's, that's, this is a hard passage. Hey, I, I don't, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't like this verse. I mean, some passages you read, it's just hard. Y'all are laughing. Y'all don't know what verse 35 is. For I've come to set a man against his father and daughter, against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take this cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Wow. I mean, y'all want to laugh now? <laughs> I'm teasing. Right? I mean, that's, that's a hard passage because it reminds us that, that people in families, there will be people in the family that will embrace Jesus and people who won't. And the question becomes, if I say that I follow Jesus and the family says no in the division, which are you going to choose? I just read an article this week from Voice of the Martyrs about a 15-year-old in Nepal who came to Christ and he was kicked out of his house. Because he confessed Jesus as Savior. What do you do when, when the, the most close relationships to you are divided over Jesus? And Jesus looks and says, yeah, your mom and your dad, right? we got a commandment. Honor your mom and dad. By the way, you can't love them as much as you love me. It, 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 it's It's hard. And yet he ends his statement the same way that we read in Galatians, right? How's, how's it end? 
Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Reminding us that the only way to have life in his name, right? What's the point in John's gospel? I have come that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so that in seeing the signs and believing that you may have life in his name. The only way to have life in his name is to lose our lives for Jesus' sake. Even if it creates divisions in families. It's a hard teaching. And Jesus says, that's what's going to happen. But if we lay down our life for him, he will give us his life. This is our king. But then lastly, his kingship is universal. Again, they don't realize it, but he says the whole world has come after him. And he's right. The whole world is coming after Jesus. Because we already have read that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So Jesus is sent to proclaim salvation to the world. And it's not a new mission. One of the things that just always frustrates me as a pastor is when people can't connect the Old Testament to the New Testament. And they, just, they, they see it as two very different things. And, and that leads to some really bad heresy. It really does. Um. But Jesus coming to proclaim the gospel to the world is not a new mission. It was why God called Abraham. It was why God called Israel. It was why God established the nation of Israel to announce salvation to the world. It's just that Israel sadly failed. They didn't announce it to the world. They got so focused looking in that they forgot about the world. Jesus says, I've I've come so that the world can have salvation. It's for everyone, right? John chapter 10, there are sheep who are not of this fold. There are sheep who are not in Israel that will come to me. Right? I mean, and we even see this, right? We, we didn't read there today. We'll be in here, uh, John 12, verse 20. Next week, the very next story. The world has gone after him. Here comes a group of Greeks who want to see Jesus. Here comes the rest of the world. And, and it's a broader term than just from Greece. It's tantamount to, to Gentile. Because for Israel, you were Jewish or you weren't. <laughs> You were Jewish or you were Greek or you were Gentile. And here come the Greeks saying, we, we, we want to see Jesus. The world is coming up after Jesus. So again, when you go back to Zechariah 9.10, it says, His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The people there, as Jesus is coming in, are saying more than they realize. Because his gospel is going to be proclaimed throughout the ends of the earth. And from the city of Jerusalem, the gospel goes to every corner of the world. And the book of Acts records this. Right? It's preached into Egypt and Africa and east into India and Asia and west into Europe. 
And then it grows through time as well, where it's preached in the Americas. And it spreads from 33 AD to today and beyond, so that people of all ages, of all geography, of all nations, of all tribes, of all tongues, of all nations, of all people groups, will hear the gospel. So that his kingship covers the earth. Again, King Charles, it was said at one time that there was not a place where the sun set on the British Empire. But at the height of the British Empire, it never really covered the world. There were still places that had no idea. But when you look at the gospel, and you look at the preaching of the gospel today, you can see that his kingship is covering the earth. From Germantown, North Carolina, all the way to Europe, down into Africa, South America, Australia, you pick a place. There are people there proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a universal gospel. It is for everyone. It is for the people in New Orleans as Kay is ministering to them to call them and say, look, yeah, and your life, what you're facing, so hard. There's a king who died for you and is calling you out of this darkness. It's It's everywhere. And it will be everywhere, and it will continue to be proclaimed everywhere. And as we think about that, I want us to think about this as we close. There's going to be another triumphal entry of Jesus. And when he does that second triumph, it will be everything that you would expect. Revelation nineteen eleven. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And on that day, on his next triumph, all the world, from sea to sea, from corner to corner, from one nation to the other, will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the kingship of Jesus is universal because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is our key. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.